Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. The real problem with social media is basically this. So there's a there's a neuropeptide uh, that functions as a hormone in the human brain that bonds us together. It's called oxytocin. Oxytocin is incredibly powerful. It's intensely pleasurable. And I get to look into your eyes right now, which is why doing a podcast is so much better in person Absolutely. than it is because of oxytocin. Absolutely. Then we get a human link is right. the way that this works. Now, one way not to get it is social media because it's not there's no eye contact it's not in person it's not even live that's why it's a really big problem however it promises you human connection you want human connection when you're starving for human connection that means you have a jones for oxytocin that's what's going on inside your brain so you go to the most convenient way to get human connection which promises you all the rewards but doesn't give you any oxytocin this is basically like I'm hungry, so I'm gonna go fill up on burgers and fries. Yeah. Three meals a day. You can become both obese and malnourished simultaneously by eating the wrong diet that's too high in calories and nutrients. Social media is the junk food of social life, which is why you get lonelier but binge it at the same time again and again and again. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I hope we can talk about both books because yeah, when yeah, I for sure. originally reached out to your team, which I have to say, I have a team of people who just book guests for my show. Mm -hmm. So it is pretty rare that I <laughs> go and like dig and find a website and find an email address and track people down and harass. And I 
have been sending notes to your team for a while now. And, and, so, and they didn't get through? No, no, they did. Oh, okay. It was just to line up with your schedule. Oh, I so see. I am so tickled that you're here. Oh, me too. Because as soon as I read the first, was that your first book? That was my 12th book, but it was, I read a lot of bad books first. Okay. Yeah. Same. This is my same story. Nobody knew about like me until my sixth book. Books yes. Same. Uh, well, so I read your 12th book or your 22nd book <laughs> because my boyfriend read it and then recommended it to me. And I told you when we were walking through the house, it like within two days, I found, I was like, you got to read this. You, no you know, take I'm this so book. Glad to hear that. Yeah. So, yeah, so happy. Can you tell a bit about the impetus for that book and yeah. the the lessons that we find inside of it? Yeah, so I, I write, teach, and speak about happiness, about the science of happiness. I'm a social scientist, and I, I know almost everybody who does the neuroscience and social science of happiness, and what they all have in common is that they want it. I mean, everybody wants to be happier, but people who have a social science toolkit and who feel a happiness deficit, these are the people who specialize in happiness, and that was my case too. Happiness is hard for me. It's not like horrible it's, yeah. it's not like <laughs> nobody needs to you know call 911 but it 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 it's not you know i'm i'm lower in positive affect and higher in negative affect than than a lot of people meaning that you see you tend to gravitate more towards negativity yeah or pessimism well it's not even pessimism it's melancholia as they used to say in the middle ages yes. it's just kind of sort of a blue outlook. And, and look, I come from gloomy parents and gloomy grandparents. And, and half of your baseline happiness is genetic. We actually know this from identical twin studies where, where identical twins are separated at birth and adopted into separate families. So it's a statistical test. It's not done on purpose. That would be unethical, obviously. Except for but that one can... documentary with the triplets. Yeah. Oh, Have right. you seen that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Really upsetting. Sorry. I, I, I know. <laughs> What you mean the what three identical strangers? That is one? That, yes, yeah, yeah. The, the like, three brothers? They, yes, yes. And super they, heavy. Yeah. Yeah, super yeah. Heavy. Super heavy. Yeah. I know. And it turns out that they all have the same set of psychiatric conditions, yes. et cetera, because these things are largely inherited. Yeah. Between forty and eighty percent of every personality characteristic is gen is genetic, and your baseline mood is half genetic. And so That's that means what? it's super important to understand that so you can manage your genetics. I mean, half of your tendency toward alcoholism and drug abuse is genetic yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. But that all that means is that you need better habits. If you've got a proclivity toward it, you know, I've got this super technology for turning that to zero. It's called don't drink. Yeah. You know? yeah. And the same thing is true for your happiness. If it turns out you've got gloomy parents, you should study happiness so that you can have the right kind of habits. And so I, you know, realizing that maybe a little later than I should have in my 40s, I'm like, I'm going to turn my toolkit on this thing. Well, it's my wife. You know, she's like, don't you have a PhD? You know, are, why aren't you using it, you know, for something useful, like not making me miserable? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I actually, I actually turned the whole toolkit toward, toward trying to understand what, what kind of a strategy I could put together for my own life so that I could live happier and share these ideas with other people. And, and I, I changed my career completely. I did a just, I was a CEO of a think tank, a big nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C., and I quit my job. And At what, what age were you? I was, uh, I took that job when I was 44, and I quit when I was 55. And I was, in the last seven years of that, I was writing a personal research-based science plan for getting happier for me. And I had this big envelope of notes and, you know, notebooks, and, and Esther, my wife, found it. She's like, this is a book. Ah, it's not the kind of stuff I write books about. I think somebody might be interested in this. Yeah. And I published it. It was from strength to strength about how you can get happier as the years go by. And it turned out to be something that people wanted to read. And 
it, I became so enthusiastic about it. I said, you know, this is not right for me to keep doing something else and have this be my personal plan. I, I want to write, speak, and teach about this for literally the rest of my life. I mean, I rewrote my personal mission statement, which is I want to use uh, science and ideas to lift people up and bring them together in bonds of happiness and love. That's what I want to do. And I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. And so I left in 2019 and I've been teaching at Harvard and writing in the Atlantic and writing books and talking about the thing that people really want the most, which is getting happier. Is is the data skewed in any direction for men who are over mm. 40 versus women who are over 40? There are differences for yeah. sure. Traditionally, men and women have had happiness differences. Um, traditionally, women are happier than men is what we find in almost every category. So if you look at, at marriage, you find that married women are happier than married men, that single women are happier than single men. Widowed women are way happier than widowed men. It's like my wife looked at that one. She's like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> the, only, the only group of women that tend to be less happy are divorced women who have kids in the home because it's incredibly stressful. It's just tons Girl. of work. Isn't that right, Rachel? I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I know. It's like... <laughs> As our, um, our sweet uh, housekeeper, who I literally don't know how we'd live without, this morning, I think, could tell I was very stressed. I have four kids, mm. and each of them go to a different school. Oh, nice. And this was the first week back at school. Yeah, yeah. So just trying to navigate how everyone would get to school today right. was like... Oh, it was, it was like Operation Desert Storm, it, right? It was, yeah. yeah. And uh -huh. I came back and I was sort of standing at the kitchen counter like, okay, we did this. We're yeah. fine. And she looked at me and she said, I know you don't want to hear this, but it really does go so fast. And people used to yeah. tell me that when my kids were young. And I used to tell them back that they had no idea what they were talking about because they didn't know how hard it felt right. for me. And she said, it doesn't mean that this moment isn't hard for you but it is precious. Yeah. And I was like, thank you. I know, I know. Well, part of it is, and I actually, it's one of the things that I study in, in my work. And you find that, that when your kids are little and there's a lot of stress and you're pursuing a career and you know, yes. moving and all yeah. the things that you do, especially if you're single, yeah. that, uh, that you're trading off a lot of enjoyment for meaning. So your life has more and more and more meaning, but less and less and less enjoyment. And that's one of the reasons in your 30s and 40s, it can be so difficult. And moment to moment, happiness can be hard to come by. That's one of the reasons. And, you know, it is, it's funny because, you know, I remember in, in those years, I mean, my wife did a lot more than I did in bringing up the kids because I was always working, I was running right. a company or you know, whatever. But I tried to be home as much as possible and it was, it was stressful. It really was stressful. And then it's weird because they grew up, now I'm a grandfather. Are you really? Uh -huh. How's that? Different. Yeah. So it's the same. It's weird. It's yeah. like, it's better. Yeah, I'm sure you could give them back to somebody. I know, I know, I know. It's really, really great. And I didn't sort of think that that was going to happen, but of course it does because they grow up. And my kids got married young. I have my my 25 and 23 year old sons are both married. Oh wow! Yeah, my 20 year old daughter's not married yet. Yeah, you know, but, but who also is adopted, by the way. Mm, cool. Like your like your youngest. Yeah. Too. Yeah. But it's a different kind of a sensation. And but I'm more conscious of the fact that that's going to go fast. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. it because there's less pressure and so. So there's more moment-to-moment -moment happiness and more meaning. Hmm. So, so you're going to you, love it okay. when the time comes. I didn't mean to interrupt, yeah, no. uh, but can you explain what you mean? What's the difference between happiness and moment-to-moment -moment happiness? Well, it's it's the happiness that you're experiencing right now versus the over the arc of your life. Got it. So what you'll say is, so I could ask you two questions like, Rachel, how happy are you this morning? 
or I could say, how happy are you this year? Yeah. Or how happy is this decade? And you'd, you'd have to think about yeah. all three of them in different ways. You could answer the first one most sort of like that. Yeah. You'd say like, Nyeh. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, and, and this year, it would be something you'd be thinking about the events of this year. You moved. Of course. Really, really stressful. But you're living in a place where you really want to live. And so you'd be thinking about the yes. sums, like the, the cost and benefits. And this decade like, been a crazy decade for Richard yeah. Hollis. Yeah, it has. Uh huh. And sure. so you'd have to think about that. You'd have to think. You know, it's like there's kind of the party line on how happy I should be, and there's the happiness that I really, I really, I am enjoying. Yeah. And that's how we'd we'd go into that if we were trying to calculate that one. Well, and what's the difference between contentment yeah. and happiness? Contentment. See, the the funny thing about happiness, there's so many words around it. Right. So let's sort of define the terms. So happiness is basically a combination of three things. It's sort of the macronutrient profile of happiness. So if you're going to do your macros in food, it's protein, carbohydrates, and fat. The 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 macronutrients of happiness are enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. These are the three parts of happiness. You know, I guess you, I'm really happy then. Yeah, because you've got like those I'm, three things. Those three things. Yeah, I and do contentment happen. is really uh, it's it's kind of the convergence of satisfaction and meaning in your life, satisfaction and purpose in your life. Enjoyment is interesting because enjoyment is actually hard to get. Most people will will stop at pleasure, and pleasure never brings happiness. Pleasure is this limbic phenomenon. It's this, it's this neurophysiological phenomenon. It's a signal to you that it's going to help you survive and pass on your genes, but it will never lead to happiness because it's fleeting. Pleasure never no, brings happiness. It does not. What you need is pleasure plus people plus memory. So for example, if there's something that gives you pleasure, but you're alone, it's a problem because that will lead to addiction and won't lead to happiness. Whoa, that's so good. Yeah, and so you need so that's why Anheuser Busch doesn't do an ad for beer that shows a guy One pounding guy. a twelve pack <laughs> alone in his apartment. You're because so that's right. pleasure, and that will not bring that guy happiness. Right. But in the ad, the guy is drinking a beer with his brother and friends. And, and they're, they're having a, a great time trip. and loving each other yeah. on a fishing trip and making a memory. Yes. Pleasure plus people plus memory equals enjoyment, and that leads to happiness. Oh, my God. I actually didn't know this is something that could be broken down in yeah. this way, but obviously it Yeah, can. yeah, yeah. These are the equations. I do this on all the components of happiness because I'm, my job is to teach people how to get more of it. And so you can't just be like, yeah, it's a thing. You can't be really philosophical about it. you got to right. be very specific. About right. It. And each one of the, the macronutrients of happiness has a – has a formula like this, and you can check yourself to know whether you've got the right strategy in your life. And then is it as simple as just add more of those types of moments? Well, yeah. So most people, I, I can usually diagnose what's going wrong in people's lives. If they have lots and lots of pleasure, but not enough people and memories in their life, I can actually say you're going toward addiction. You don't need to get rid of these sources of pleasure. You need to dial them down and put in more opportunities to be sociable, to be to be in communion with other people and to be more conscious of what you're doing such that you can be engaging the prefrontal cortex of your brain and not just your lizard brain. Wow. Lizard brain says, huh, beer feel good. Yeah. Right? And that's not the way to consume it. Now, some people, they, they will wire their brains, their dopaminergic pathways, the, the neuromodulators in their brain so that they have to hit the pleasure lever again and again and again and again. And those are the people who have to stop doing that. Mm. And to not use that source of pleasure ever again because they get, frankly, too good at it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of neuroscience that goes into this whole thing too. So uh, I'm thinking in terms of someone right now who heard this and realizes, wow, I get my pleasure from food. Like I, right. I, I'm, and I'm doing it by myself. I'm doing sort of the exact things that right. you're describing. For someone who might be having that 
awareness right now? What does it look like to add people and memory to that experience? So they're experiencing the pleasure, but not in a way that's becoming something negative for them. Yeah. So the, the way to do it is to is to think a strategy of adding as opposed to subtraction. Right. Now, there are a lot of cases you have to subtract. I mean, if you if people eat to excess and it's really bad for their bodies, then they need to actually tighten up their diet right. for sure. But that's kind of obvious. Right. The way to think about it in a way that's not punitive and that's not negative is to say, I have a rule except under extraordinary circumstances, I never eat alone. I don't eat alone. Now, some people live alone. So what are yeah. you going to do? You know, yeah. I saw this I saw this book called Microwave Cooking for One. Oh, I almost God. started crying oh, when I heard it. I like, no. but, but I get it. I'm alone a lot because I'm on the road and I'm not always traveling with, you know, and you know what it's like when you're on the, on the road alone. And and there's sometimes when it's just really, really refreshing to go to a a restaurant and eat and, and think and, you know, et cetera. But as a rule, I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat the most delicious food by myself. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a rule of eating with other people. So such that it is a social experience. And when I'm doing it, I'm going to be doing it while doing something memorable. I'm going to have a conversation that's memorable. So add these rules to it and it will change your life. You don't have to be on some sort of crazy, you know, uh, subtractive, limiting diet because those things never work. Right. 95% of diets don't work. And and there's a reason for that too. I mean, we actually understand the neuroscience of how that works, not just the the lipid profiles, et cetera. But, you know, when the scale is going down, it's, it's the, the benefit is higher than the cost of not eating what you like. But when you hit your goal... Your reward is never eating what you like ever again for the rest of your life. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. And so the whole point is you have to change your orientation toward the source of the pleasure, whereas drinking or, 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 um, you know, intimacy with your partner or, um, what you're actually doing with your eating habits or, or if you're going to Vegas, don't go to Vegas by yourself. Right. Don't sit in front of a, a, a slot machine by yourself. That's right. you're hitting the dopamine circuit in your brain again and again and again, because you want that pleasure reward. Yeah. And it's not going to bring you happiness. It's going to bring you misery. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way, as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. 
Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Well, what is that thing? It popped in my head because we're talking about uh, food specifically. And I remember reading years ago about part of the reason I was for a very long time an emotional eater and I would binge when I was mm-hmm. younger because um, it was all sorts of Super things. common, by the way. Yeah. And the more you go on a diet, the more you're likely to do right. that. And one of the things I remember reading that sort of blew my mind was this idea that part of the appeal of that was that in my head I was doing something naughty. Yeah. Like I was like doing something that was wrong that I shouldn't be doing and a childhood that was very like a, a very religious home and like good versus bad. Rules-based. Right, very <laughs> rules-based. So what is that when it's not just the pleasure of like I'm going to drink in it, but it's also like today was hard and screw the world and like I'm going to do something that I'm that's bad because I get to. Well, part of it is because your whole life is deferring gratification, is is deferring your enjoyment for some later date all the time and becoming so people who are incredibly disciplined that when they go on a diet, they find that they get to their goal weight. 35% of people when they get to their goal weight, they keep going. And the reason is cuz they want to keep getting the reward. They want to keep getting the reward. And 25% of those people develop an eating disorder. I mean, it's like, this is how normal this is. Look, look, there are pe- Rachel, there are people listening and watching us right now, and they think they're the only one. They're not the only one. It's you and millions and millions and millions wow. and millions of people who are not talking about it because there's a lot of shame involved in it, a lot of shame in, in giving in to the gratification and, and, and not being able to live up to your own sense of discipline is the yeah. way that it works. And so you have to understand, this is why the science is so critically important. This is not a moral issue. Yes. This is a biological issue is the way that this turns out. And if we can understand how the science, basically how the equations work and then how to remedy it by adding something in as opposed to continuing to take something away. Every time you're taking something away, you're going to pay because your body's keeping the score. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to make you pay. Right. So don't take things away besides, you know, if it turns out that you're pre-diabetic, you should probably stop eating so much sugar. And that's, <laughs> but that's just medical, right? is to start adding in people in memory, adding in people in memory, add so into that. Weird. And your your orientation toward the source of pleasure will, will change. Right. It's funny you say this people in memory thing, because I had this realization recently. I My kids were at camp and I had gotten to go to Ibiza, got to lay by a pool and like be in the sunshine. And Did you like Ibiza? No. It's not my vibe. You should have gone to Formentera, which is the I next love island Formentera. over. I yeah. love it. It just, it, I actually was in Spain to do the Camino yeah. de Santiago. Oh, you did? Yeah, and um, got wild hives and edema on my feet and had to stop early. And so <laughs> I was sorry. like, where can we go? Let's go to Ibiza. It was a whole thing. But I'm not a person who likes to just 
lay by a pool and do nothing. That's not really my vibe, but that's what I ended up doing. And everyone was like, oh my God, are you just living your best life? Are you living your best life? And I would normally jokingly say, yeah, yes, I am. My kids are all at camp and I'm living my best life. And it was the first time that I thought, you know, we say that expression all the time. What actually is my definition of my best life? What's the best it gets for me? And I realized the best it gets for me is laughing with my kids on vacation. Mm. That's the best. Mm. The vacation is the source of pleasure, the kids are the people, and the laughing, the source of the laughing yeah. is the memory. Yes. It, all that's three. You it. got you got all three. You got right. enjoyment and that's the source of happiness. Yes. So this yeah. is a, I'm like, oh, that's the connection that's that I'm making yeah, right that's now. Exactly is why. that like me by myself, like right. laying at a pool is never gonna be something that's like right. doing it for me. Yeah, no. And, but when it's right. all of us together. Exactly right. And people when they become addicted, when their brains become habituated to the source of pleasure, they can't stand ingredients two and three. So you find as people get more and more addicted, they become more and more isolated, right? They start getting rid of, like if you're drinking compulsively, it's to have no memories and you want to do it alone so that you can, you're not distracted from your hobby. Wow. And, and so this is, that's just how insidious this actually is. But once people start recognizing these patterns in their own, and some people will be like, I'll like it less. I'll like it. Yep. Yeah, but that's what you actually have to do so that you can enjoy it more and actually get happiness and start to eliminate the source of that misery in your life. Wow. So each did, one of these sorts of parts of happiness, this is the happiness science. Yeah. No, it, it's honestly, it's tripping me out just to make these connections in my mind. Does everyone want to be happy? Yes, but not everybody knows that. No, not everybody acts that way. There's a lot of people who act like they really want to be unhappy. And part of that is because their behavioral patterns are attuned toward getting the attention that they seek or the love that they want by being a victim of circumstances, yeah. for example. I know you've written about that an awful lot. Yeah. Or by, by, by being miserable, they'll have people treat them the way that they think they want to be treated. The truth is that they act like they want to be unhappy, but they deeply want love and happiness. Love and happiness are the, I mean, it's what life is attuned toward. And, and, and so therefore what we need is to acknowledge that and start actually trying to get what we want as opposed to some sort of complicated, weird, twisted strategy to get every, everybody else to manipulating everybody else to treat us in a particular way because we're so messed up. How did social media then play into that? Because I think of like this obsession with everybody thinking that my life from the outside is so perfect. Right. Meanwhile your life is a shit show and you're miserable, but oh my gosh, as long as everyone thinks it's great. I remember years ago seeing some influencer on some platform who posted a photo, like a gorgeous photo of himself looking amazing. And he said, 30 minutes after I posted that photo, I tried to commit suicide. And he had done two years of therapy and gotten help and got all these things. But he was like, I remember thinking like, I just, if everyone thinks I'm great, then- that'll be the thing that makes my life great. Social media plays into all of the biases and fallacies that we live under as human beings. It's almost a perfect strategy for, for, for doing everything wrong in your life. So to begin with, Instagram, for example, which has a lot of good things on it. Yeah. I mean, it's like I, I can look at Instagram reels and just laugh and laugh and laugh because it delivers funny, oh, exclusively yeah. funny stuff. <laughs> yeah. it, it, amazing baseball plays and and for some reason raccoons doing funny things in people's backyards. Yes. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, that's what I get. Apparently, that's what I like. And and Mark Zuckerberg knows that that's what I really, really like. He knows my brain as well as I do, I think. so. But the problem is basically that you're living in real life a blooper reel and you're looking at 
what every what everybody else's greatest hits. And they're looking at your greatest hits and living their blooper reel. And, and we have an incredible bias in our minds. We have this almost uh, concrete inability to, to assess what we see and then to filter it with what we know. You know perfectly that this in influencer is not living his best life. Right. You know perfectly there's no way you could be living that way and enjoying it. And part of the reason is because you've had a lot of notoriety and have a lot of experiences and 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 you've had your own issues, yeah. right? You yes. know, with being super public person yeah. and being like, okay, yeah. this is this yeah. is public Rachel and yeah. now let's get into private Rachel. You know the difference and you yeah. know that that's true. I and mean, this is human life is yeah. the way that this turns out. Fame, by the way, is the only one of the of worldly rewards that you can only ever be happy in spite of. You okay, want it that. evolutionarily. You want you want fame. Because notoriety, where people more people know you than you know, is something that evolution is an imperative. Why? Because it helps you succeed in life, rise in hierarchies, pass on your genes, live another day. It's really, really good for you for the evolutionary reasons, but it's horrible for happiness because Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. And so people want it, want it, want it, want it, and they get more and more and more and more miserable until they figure that out. Yeah. Right? And so, and you've lived it. Yes. Not everybody has, right? And they're like, ah, well, fine, guys. Let me try. Right. Because evolution's pushing you, pushing you for all of this. Okay, so you can know that intellectually, but you don't quite believe it because Mother Nature's so strong with this thing. Mother Nature is so strong. So the, the real problem with social media is basically this. So there's a, there's a neuropeptide uh, that functions as a hormone in the human brain that bonds us together. It's called oxytocin. Oxytocin is incredibly powerful. It's intensely pleasurable. When, you, when your first child was born and you, you locked eyes on your squalling newborn infant, mm -hmm. they put him, it's the son, yeah. right? On, on you, on your chest and mm -hmm. you locked eyes and it's like the 4th of July yes. inside your head, right? <clears throat> That's oxytocin. And, and every time you see him still, and, and I get to look into your eyes right now, which is why doing a podcast is so much better in person Absolutely. than it is because of oxytocin. Absolutely. Then we get a human link is right. the way that this works. Now, one way not to get it is social media because it's not, there's no eye contact. It's not in person. It's not even live. That's why it's a really big problem. However, it promises you human connection. You want human connection when you're starving for human connection that means you have a Jones for oxytocin. That's what's going on inside your brain. So you go to the most convenient way to get human connection, which promises you all the rewards, but doesn't give you any oxytocin. This is basically like I'm hungry, so I'm going to go fill up on burgers and fries. Yeah. Three meals a day. You can become both obese and malnourished simultaneously by eating the wrong diet. That's too high in calories and nutrients. Social media is the junk food of social life which is why you get lonelier but binge it at the same time again and again and again. And I want to make sure that we come back to one thing because I'm taking us, I've taken us yeah. like so far over yeah. here, which is you leaving your job. Yeah. And I know that's a terrible transition. No, it's and okay. I want to come back to where we were. But I feel like if we get too far from this, the people at the very beginning were like, wait, you had the dream job. Right. You had the the success story, the thing that everybody is supposed to want, and you took a hard right turn at an age when you're not supposed to reinvent yourself right. and did something totally different. Walked away. Did you get happier immediately or did it take a minute? Took a minute because I didn't know who I was. When you're doing something with your life and your career, whether you see your identity as mom or CEO, we define ourselves with respect to our outside circumstances and what we've achieved. That's what humans do. 
And so Rachel Hollis, author, podcaster. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Daughter of God mm -hmm. in relation to family and friends. You know that. But right. but the truth of the matter is that when people are, you're at a party in LA and right. they say, Rachel, hey, yeah. nice to meet you. What do you do? You don't right. say... I'm a mom. Yeah. That's not what you say. No. Because that's not what people are asking. That's that is a right. good answer to the why question, right. but it's not a very good answer to the what question. And it's not what people are expecting. Okay. When when you abandon that and then you don't know who you are because you've objectified yourself. Objectification is this funny thing that people do. And there's a literature on how objectification of other people diminishes them and dehumanizes them. And it's a bad thing to do. You know, my, my dad would say, you know, he'd say, you don't objectify women. It's an immoral, it's a sinful thing to do. God doesn't want you to objectify women. I, by the way, I completely believe that's true. Mm -hmm. But my dad never told me not to objectify myself. Self-objectification, no joke. You know, when you look in the mirror and what you see is successful person, hardworking person, mom who gives everything. And you see yourself as a kind of a cardboard cutout of yourself. You become a the job title. That That's a huge problem because when you finally get up the courage or you become so desperate that you let it go, then, then you don't know who you are. And you look in the mirror and there's a stranger. And that's intensely uncomfortable. By the way, it's incredibly generative and very important. That th those are the moments when you can actually flourish and grow. So let me ask you. You've done that a couple of times in the last three years, right? Absolutely. Tell me how that felt. Very difficult. Very difficult. I was I, I grappled a lot with whether or not I could still have success if I wasn't the woman that everyone had decided I was, which was married, mother, like filling a certain role. That if all of a sudden I wasn't married would you still listen to anything I had to say? Uh, which sounds nuts, but you would be surprised how many people were very upset, very, very upset that I made that choice. Because and you, because your marriage failed. Yeah, because I, I chose to leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of women had sort of put me on a pedestal as like, oh, this is what it is to be a good wife and to stand by your man and Obviously, nobody knew why I was choosing to leave, and I didn't feel it was appropriate to say that story. So I really was concerned because I have been the financial breadwinner for my family for a very long time. Hmm. And I thought, if this all falls apart, who's taking right. care of these kids? Like, it was so layered for me. There was a lot of fear. Oh, my there wasn't God. Just, so much fear. I don't know who I am. It was also just a lot of fear right. that you might not be able to pay the right. rent. Uh, absolutely. And that it didn't even make sense. In retrospect, it makes zero sense. It was all scarcity right. mindset because, oh, my word, like, I grew up so poor. So for me to now, with this financial abundance, be like, what will happen to my kids? But it was very real for me. I know. I know that's the key. And, and you know, the truth is... It wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, but that it's not an intellectual thing. That's right. that, what that what that is. By the way, is that's a death fear. Right. You know, and you're not afraid of actually dying. No, you're afraid of your identity dying, of understanding yourself dying. Yes. So some people are super afraid of becoming irrelevant, or of being forgotten. Yeah. Or of being seen in a different way, or failing. Yes. And and people who super high achievers, they always have this death fear of failure because they never really failed. Or they failed, but you know, and but the, the stakes get higher, and they get higher, and they get higher. My guess is you have a very strong fear of failure because you've succeeded a lot, and you've worked really hard for it. Right. 
And so right. at that moment where you're like, well, that defines failure given, yeah. uh, given the, the image that I've created and the inspiration I've tried to stimulate for these other women. And, yeah. and so that was your death fear. So, yeah. so, so tell me how you, how you dealt with that. I have to say that, I mean, I grappled with it for a very long time and I eventually got to the place where the, the life that I was living was so untenable that it would have been the death of me to stay in that. It would have been the death of like my soul and my spirit. And that was what eventually drove me to make the choice. You felt like you had no choice. I had no choice. Right. There was, I understood that on an intuitive level that I now recognize was right. a lot deeper than I, than I knew was like, I have to be healthy and strong because these kids are my priority. Right. And if I don't leave, then the whole ship's gonna go down. Right. I was also sort of grappling with, and I don't know where this plays into happiness, but my whole life, I grew up without money, real like- Here in California. Here in California, very passionate about like someday. I'm right. gonna, uh, you know, I will never, my kids will never live the kind of life that You're like I live. Like Scarlett O'Hara? Yeah, oh, oh my gosh. Like someday I'm gonna, whatever. As and God is my witness. As God is my witness, I will never go hungry again. And then I had achieved a level of success that so far surpassed right. what I knew was possible. I actually was terrified. Yeah. Like I had had my yeah. foot on the gas pedal to the floor yeah. for, decades yeah. and then all of a sudden i was like oh shit wait 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 i don't know, I know how to do this i know there's an old axiom in my business in the happiness business is woe be unto the person whose dreams come true inevitably they will find they had the wrong dreams right and so what happens is typically you thought Rachel Hollis thought, you know, if, it, if I make it, if I make it, if I make it, it's like a sort of stars in your eyes and, you know, Hollywood kind of deal. Yes. That, that that's the secret of happiness is getting all the things that I want because that's what the world tells you. And you have it in your mind's eye that the achievement of that is going to bring happiness. And then you get there and it doesn't. Yes. And so then you basically have, you can, you can reassess if you have huge presence of mind or you can do what people typically do, which they say that, you know, I mean, I know a lot of very wealthy people in finance. And they're like, if I get a billion dollars, it's going to be awesome. And then they get there and it's not. And they're like, I guess it. I guess I needed two billion. Two billion, yeah. And, and so they think that it's more. And then it's just a search for more for the rest of their life. Yeah. And, and they can't. So, so what happened to you was this incredible good luck, which is that you had an accident. You know, the, you had a 10-car pileup. Mm -hmm. If you hadn't, your dream would have come true and it would have been unsatisfying and, and troubling and create problems and havoc in your life and you would have been like, I guess I need more success? Yeah, no, I did that. The most successful years of my life and the podcast audience has heard me talk about this. The most successful years of my life were the most miserable. I would make money falling off a log. There was right. nothing that didn't nothing work. Nothing didn't make money. It was just <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And yeah. I was completely depleted. There was no happiness. Right. There was no, it was like just propping me up, like trying to keep me going with caffeine and like running ragged and on the road and yeah. not seeing my kids. And I was like, what is this life? I know. This is- And you had no idea how to get out I of it. I had no idea how to get out of it. And an accident got you out of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not only was now my happy, this is in my head, not only was my happiness attached to the success, but all of these employees, like right. this massive company, all of these people counting on me. Right. This is a story I told myself that if I don't keep producing at this level, then they're not going to be okay. Their kids aren't going to have money. It was absolutely insane. And then it just exploded through COVID, through divorce, through all the things It just exploded. And it really sounds so stupid. 
it sounds like something someone says on a meme on mm -hmm. social media. But like those years of the hardest, like I don't know how we're gonna get through this, right. is why I have the life I have today, mm. is why I am this person, right. is why I understand that I will never make those choices again for all the money in the world. You could not, if someone said, I will give you a billion with a B, a billion dollars to repeat 2019 at the same pace, no, no, no way. way, no way, no way, no, but it took, it actually took the experience of, it's interesting because nobody wants pain. And if in 2018, I had told you what was going to happen in the subsequent years, you wouldn't have taken it. You wouldn't have taken it, but it was delivered to you because, you know, guess what? You don't have to go looking for, for suffering. It's going to find you right. and it's going to find everybody listening to us and watching us because suffering is part of life. The key thing to understand is that when suffering inevitably happens, you've got two choices. You can run away from it, you can deny it, you can try to make it go away, or you can learn from it and grow from it. Sometimes you don't have a choice because it's, it's thrust upon you, but then it really, it has everything to do with the experience that we have. You know, I have an, I have a, uh, an exercise I put my students through at the business school at Harvard that they, lots of things, good things happen to them, but lots of bad things happen to them. Like all of us, you know, we get rejected in some way or we feel hurt in some way or we're disappointed by something. And, and, and people say, hey, Rachel Hollis got the perfect life. She's never disappointed. Yeah, right. <laughs> like lots of disappointments, yeah. even still. Yeah. I mean, even when the, when the worst years of your life are behind you for now, you know, well, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> suffering all... is going to find us again and again and again. So, but little things happen. So I make my students keep a, a disaster journal. Okay, right? tell and, me this. Yeah, so and this. It's when something bad happens, <laughs> you open up your journal and you write the thing that happened that you really wish hadn't happened. And so my students are 20-something. So a lot of that will have to do with the fact that, you know, somebody I was in love with broke up with me. Right. A lot of it has to do with that. Or a job I really, really wanted. They're coming out of the Harvard Business School and they're going to be, you know, the masters of the universe, et cetera. And they, yes. and they don't get that job at that investment bank or something. I'm like, you're so lucky you didn't get that <laughs> job. But, I, you know, I'm 59, so I can, I have the right. perspective of age for that. Okay, so I'll say write it down in your journal but leave two lines blank under it and put a reminder on your phone that after one month, you're going to come back and write down what you learned because of that experience after a month. And then six months later, you get another reminder to go back and say a good thing that happened because of that. Now, we don't record these memories very well, but when you write them down, it's really life-changing. Because the next time you write something down, you look at the lines above it and you go, yeah, last time there was something kind of like this, I learned something. I learned that, for example, I thought I was going to be sad forever, but I was only sad for two weeks. Right. And the thing I really got from it was I actually got out of a relationship that was not very functional and I met somebody else. That was my six-month thing. Yeah. And you start getting much better at predicting that you're going to learn and grow. Yeah. And then you start becoming more attuned to learning and growing. This is the way for us to actually see the setbacks in our lives. Because wow. we need them and we got two choices. We can not learn from them or we can learn from them. <laughs> Wait, I'm trying to do the math on this because you said you're 59. Yeah. So how, when did you leave your firm? 55. Yeah, so this has been four, four years? Four years. The first two years were... Well, so I, I went back to academia and I started writing and I had these big ideas and a column and, you know, documentary film and, yeah. and, and these books are going to go really, really great. And it didn't. <laughs> and then COVID hit and we all went home and all my speeches got canceled, which mm -hmm. is more or less how I made a living. Yeah. And I sat in a house in front of a Zoom screen in a, a suburb of Boston where I didn't know anybody 
and I had one child at home left my, my little girl who was a senior in high school doing Zoom school. Oh. And me and my wife and my daughter, we were like on a, we felt like we we're on a raft outside the Titanic. It was, it was pretty bad, yeah. Rachel. Yeah. And then, and then it got better. Yeah. And then it got better. I learned a lot. You know, I, I started to surround myself with more people who shared a vision of what this, what could actually happen in the last couple of years have been, I mean, magic yeah. in their way. And, yeah. and it's getting better, but it had to, it had to crash and burn. When did From Strength to Strength come out? February of 2022. 22, so okay. So it was last year. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And that, that book was an eight-year project, but I didn't know if anybody was going to buy it. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know if it was going to sell. So it comes out in 22. It had to be, or I'm assuming, I could be totally wrong, it had to be super successful given what everyone had just gone through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It opened number one in the New York Times bestseller list, which is the first time that that's ever happened. That's why. You know, I have this friend who's, a, you know, huge. She's written, you know, way, way, way more bestselling books than I've ever written. And, and he says, yeah, I remember the first time I got a New York Times bestseller, number one. And I always thought it's going to be so great. I'm going to be so happy. And, and then it happened. And I'm like, huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm like, let me try. Yeah. <laughs> and I called him up and I said, actually, it's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but it was cool for like a week. Right. And then you move on. Well, because the the list moves on. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The list moves on. And this is actually one of the great paradoxes of your dreams coming true. And by the way, we're talking about sort of outsized dreams because you've had this outsized life and really good things yes. have happened to me too. But But everybody watching us has good things happen to them too. Yes. And one of the paradoxes of happiness is that the satisfaction doesn't last. Law of familiarity. Yeah. yeah. And and it's like Mick Jagger says, I can't get no satisfaction. The truth is you can't keep no satisfaction. This is a real tyranny, as it turns out. Now, there's a way around that, but there's not a, you, you got to know the science. What's the way around it? Well, the way around that is not to have more, it's to want less. So your, your satisfaction is haves divided by wants. Haves divided by wants. Everybody's remembering their high school math. You can increase your satisfaction by increasing the numerator. Have more, have more, have more, have more. Or you can more efficiently do it by managing your wants. By saying, I'm going to want less. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want what I have as opposed to having what I want. I'm going to make a list of what I have instead of having. Yeah, yeah. So you got to manage the denominator. You have to have a denominator management strategy. You got to have a reverse bucket list where you'd look at all your cravings and stupid ambitions and you cross them out, say, I get them, but easy come, easy go. Maybe I do and maybe I don't. I'm 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 gonna manage that craving so it doesn't manage me and it works. Mm. This is the incredible thing. It actually works. the, The way to think about that is that you're you're trying to create this beautiful work of art that is your life, right? Rachel Hollis is a work of art that's not done yet, right? You can think of you as a canvas that you're filling up with brush strokes, but at age, I don't know how old you are. 40. You're 40. You look good. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it goes by quick. I still yeah. feel like I'm 40. You're adding brush strokes. Well, your, your full life is a full canvas. You need a better metaphor for the beautiful work of art that you're becoming, which is more like a sculpture that you're chipping away. For your life to be better, you need to chip away stuff until you find the beautiful work of art that's inside yes. you. Yes. Because all the stuff is is detritus. Yes. It's you know, chisel, 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 get rid yes. of this, get rid of that. And that's the reverse bucket list. It's And that's managing your wants. Yeah. Have you ever heard Michelangelo talk about yeah. David? Yeah, he talked about that as like, and, and you know, how, how do you make a horse and rider out of marble? Well, you just chip away all the marble that doesn't look like a horse or right, a rider, but right. not so simple. It really is. This has been such a huge thing for me in the last few years. 
and to get to this place where I am happy by your right. definition, happier, happier, absolutely, is just removing things, mm-hmm. removing, removing, removing. And I have to say, I don't know if it's you know I'm lucky in the circle of friends that I have, but most people that I know that have wealth, you wouldn't know. They're not chasing new things. Right. They're not buying the flashy. You see the people whenever I'm in LA. And I'm walking down the street and I'm seeing people in the Maserati or the Bentley or the whatever. I assume that they have the least amount of money of anybody I know. (laughs) The flashier the thing, the more you need us to know that you've got stuff going on, the less I think you actually do. The more people are putting pictures of themselves flying in a private jet on social media, the less actual wealth I think that they have. Because it's like if you really have – if you're like settled in it, if you're not worried about it, then you're not chasing more – stuff right this right. obsession with like i need more 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 well they think that more brush strokes is going to make their but their canvas is dense and full right and it's not getting better right. you know if you're 75 years old and you're like i'll finally be happy if i get a boat i got news for you <laughs> i got news for you but the thing about it is that a lot of most of the people watching us they don't have that kind of good fortune absolutely but they're wealthy in lots of ways yeah and and there's a lot of things in their lives that they could actually quite profitably get rid of too so everybody watching and listening to us could put together a reverse bucket list and think about the things on their birthday that they should not do so they can see themselves more clearly and have a better simpler more joyful life right. maybe that's toxic friendships that don't that where they always make us gossip mm. and they they don't make us feel good about who we are as people Maybe they're the the way that we fritter away our time shopping or or you know looking at social media or whatever it happens to be. There's lots of stuff on the reverse bucket list that every single one of us can chip away. Fewer wants, not more haves. Yeah. And every I mean, look, we live in a we're very lucky. I mean, we all have things that we wish were different, and a lot of people live under economic circumstances that pinch for sure, including a lot of people who are watching us because they're young and their circumstances aren't quite right. But we live in a very wealthy time. Thank God most people are not missing meals from it. And and we we get into this mindset that more is always going to be better. And for every single person, there are ways in which that's manifestly false so that we can we can actually hack the matrix of satisfaction. Yeah. And I would also say just from a different perspective as someone who's sort of hustled my way up into building a business and and having financial freedom, that a big piece of that is being aware of what the distractions are. Yeah. So you gave a lot of examples like social media, we talked earlier about addiction or you know numbing yourself so you don't have to feel the things that are happening. I get that, I've done that. I think every human listening to this has some example of like numbing themselves so they don't have to feel what's really going on. Right. But when you feel it, you can fix it. Yeah. When you feel it, you have an ability to face it. Right. And when you're able to, like you said, remove those pieces, you actually get more clarity and more focus on the areas of your life that you can improve. And that includes your financial situation. Sure. It, it's not real and equal for everybody in the way that it should be. It's not fair. But at the same time, I do think that when you are able to remove certain distractions from your life, you're like, oh, here's the energy that I needed to do the things that I wanted to do, to build that business to the next place, to go back to school, to attract a circle of friends that are where I want to go, not where I was. But when we are numbing ourselves or going back to those old things, 
you don't even realize right. the choices that you need to make because you're just repeating patterns. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, you're making a very good point about how people will will try to not face fear because that's an uncomfortable thing to do today, but it's an unbelievably empowering thing to do. Yeah. Just to look right just at it. Just look at the monster yeah. under the bed. Yeah. There is a um there's this meditation that the Theravada Buddhist monks do in Vietnam and Thailand and Burma. It's called the Maranasati meditation. And this is where you imagine yourself decomposing. Yeah. yeah. So it's the nine part death meditation. And so the, the monks is very, very important to Buddhist monks to, to get rid of the illusion that life and death are fundamentally different. This is part of Buddhist ideology, Buddhist theology, and, and it's something that a lot of Westerners don't completely understand, and that's fine. But the whole point is they need to become more comfortable with the concept of dying for, for lots of reasons. So they'll imagine themselves in various states of decomposition. They'll meditate for two or three minutes at a time on, okay, I'm, I'm a dead body. Okay, number two, I'm starting to decompose. Number three is, you know, worms. Horrible, yeah. right? But it but it becomes very real very fast, and you will get rid of your your fear. So I ask my students to do a nine-part Maranasati meditation on the source of their death fear. So if a lot of it's failure, and I'll say, okay, part one, you just failed an exam. Think about it. Put yourself in that position. Their blood pressure will rise, you know. Then I say, and I have to admit that things are not going well for me at Harvard. And I'm not sure I'm going to graduate, step three. Step four, the job market's going well for my friends, but it's not going well for me. Step five, I moved back in with mom. Step six, my parents feel sorry for me. And at that point, they start to cry oh. because they've never done that before. But then, but then face it. And it's funny because that's so important for us to actually make progress. And, and, and I was talking about that with, with my wife and she said, so what's your death fear? I said, huh? Cause I'm not afraid of dying. I'm, you know, and, and, it's not even failure per se, although I'm not very comfortable with failure. You know what it is? It's losing my mind. Mm. My mother was demented when she was my age. Yeah. She got early stage dementia. Wow. What happened to me? I mean, this is the whole, it's the whole deal, man. I'm, trust me, I'm not making, I'm not making a living on my looks. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's all about the ideas. Yeah. This goes, the whole thing goes. This is my whole identity. That's who I am as a person, and I realized I am terror struck because dementia is particularly that type is genetic and i've been going through life going and especially as things build and things build and things build that's it and so i started to do that death meditation where i start to lose my memory and then i start to have un unoriginal ideas and then people start to disregard these ideas and i'm telling you i'm not there yet but i'm getting freer by the day Ooh, that's a good – even when you were talking about the the lesson that you do with your kids at school, they're not kids, uh, the students. Yeah. I was thinking – They're kids to me. Yeah. They're, they're kids to me too. Uh, <laughs> that that would be a really good one for, my, for yeah. my oldest son. My oldest son is the most studious. He did mm. not get it from me. He came into this world like – I am, he's the highest. How old is he? 16. He's mm. in, in his junior year. Fought like a beautiful human to get into that school. Has never gotten a B in his life. Mm -hmm. And has wanted to go to an Ivy League college since he knew that they were a thing. And I wish that he would take a year and go smoke pot and travel the world. Like, I actually think that would be the best thing. The pot part isn't necessary. Well, I know, <laughs> but it might be for, he's pretty high strung. <laughs> I don't do it, but I was like, I feel mm -hmm. like if you were a hippie and you traveled the yeah. world. Who knows what it might know. do for you. Yeah. Right. But 
as you're saying that, I'm like, oh gosh, it, even him hearing like mm -hmm. you got into the Ivy League and it's not going well. Mm -hmm. You know, you you failed like, a test. What? He literally had to do a Spanish placement test today. That's where mm -hmm. he is right now because his school starts next week. He studied for three days. He's in like honor Spanish. He studied for three days. He did Duolingo for like five hours yesterday to be able to do a Spanish. It's a placement test. It's just to see where you are. And the pressure that he puts on himself Gee, feels... I wonder where he got this competitive spirit, <laughs> Rachel. That's weird. <laughs> but I am. I Okay. Yeah. It's like a high achievement mentality. That's yeah. weird. Do you think it runs in families? Right. I guess it's, <laughs> it's just he's a high achiever in a different way than I am because uh, I don't care about school the at thing, all. The characteristic is the characteristic. It You're manifests right. in different ways with different people. You're right. So how do I help him? You help him by actually talking to him about what it feels like to have it not go well. Right. And to, and to share the things that have gone poorly for you and asking his advice. This is the thing with teenagers. The best thing to do with teenagers is don't, don't, don't preach at them. Ask them to teach you, mm. and that's how they will learn. So you say, like, like, what's his name? Jackson. Jackson, I'm suffering today. I'm suffering today. I had this thing, and now I don't have it. And there are days when I feel like I blew it. And, and I know it's stupid because I have all the things that I want. I mean, I have a relationship with you, and my life is full of love, and I have good friends, and I'm a daughter of God but I feel like a failure today. Tell me what to do. Give me some advice. And he'll start to learn on his own too. Mm, yeah. <laughs> They're great teachers. He'll probably like fall apart. Be like, what? It's like, mom, it's like <laughs> my mom's in crisis. No, but, but, but he will, it's really good for, it's really good for him and it's really good for you. Yeah. Because, you know, look, I mean, it's gotta be hard to be your kid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I believe it. Yeah. I, I'm very hyper aware of that, that like they each have, you know, Jackson's thing is school. His, uh, my next son is a, the greatest athlete. Like he plays every sport. They're all just like, mm -hmm. okay, what's my thing? How do I? And I'm like, it's cool, guys. I know. Let's... Easy for you to say. Yeah. Easy for you to say. You know, it's like one of my sons, my oldest son, he's a super, he's a great student. And his 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 mentor, when he was going to Princeton, he, he um, I was talking to him about it and, you know, about an issue that my son was having, like trivial now in, in, in the in the rearview mirror. And, he's, and I said, you know, why is this happening to my son? You know, I mean, what, you know, where does this come from? And he said, would you want to be your son? <laughs> the truth is, they model themselves on on the values that they see with us. Yeah. And so we need to be quite conscious about having the right kind of values and teaching the right kind of lessons. Teach that by the way that we act, among other things. I mean, words are one thing, but actually living these values is critically important as well. If they actually see their parents, if, if kids see their parents chasing money all the time, it doesn't matter if they say that if you tell them that money doesn't buy happiness, they're, they're going to see what you do. It's a really interesting study that actually points this out. There's a bunch of sociologists and psychologists ask this question. What is the best predictor for your kids growing up and going to church? So for in religious communities, for specifically in Christian communities. Because everybody, you know, who's a you know, Christian, a lot of Christians are watching us and they have little kids and they're like, sure, I hope so, but I don't yeah. know what to do. I mean, I can tell them, tell them, tell them, but is that the right thing to do? So all of the data suggests that the most powerful person, the most powerful adult in their life that they've seen, physically powerful and imposing person they've seen in their life, that person worshiping seriously is the biggest predictor of them growing up to worship.
Now, in many cases, that's the father because the father is the most physically imposing. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a little kid, I wondered if my dad could lift the house, <laughs> right? <laughs> it wasn't a big house, but, but and and it was funny because my you know my dad was six foot two and 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 my dad bent the knee to no man, mm. but he was on his knees on Sunday morning, and that had an impression on me. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. And I thought to myself, that's what I want my sons to see too. And my daughter to see too. They all want to see their their dad on his knees on in church. Mm. And that turns out to have had the biggest impression on them too. Okay, so what's the version of that for Rachel Hollis? Yeah. It's, for Jackson. I, yeah. She's got to see my mom is weak before all of these forces. Mm. My mom is learning. My mom is vulnerable to these things and is searching for the sources of happiness and truth. And That's when he good. sees that, then he'll realize that happiness doesn't actually come from, you know, getting advanced placement Spanish or, you know, getting into Princeton or whatever his thing happens to be, because that's a lure that he'll chase and ultimately find his satisfaction. But once he sees that, how you've experienced it in your life, seeing that, witnessing that, and the most, literally the most successful person he's ever met is you, he will be miles ahead in his own happiness journey. Well, it's also, I'm thinking about just as a parenting hack, because it's not, I guess, hasn't occurred to me a ton that they're picking it up from me because I am a high achiever and I push myself very hard, but I don't push them. Uh, it doesn't but matter. They, they see you pushing you. They see that, you pushing I mean, you. So this is, a, I feel like, a hack for all the parents listening to this. Totally. Because Act that's the way trips, you want them to be. Act the way you want them to be. It's real, man, <laughs> because I cannot, literally, when he was going through the work, they interview him, I mean, all the yeah. tests, all the things, and then they interview me. Yeah. And that has to be one of the funniest conversations that counselor has ever had. Because I graduated high school. Like, I don't have, and so this woman's like, so where... Where did you go to? Where was your higher education? Like what? And I said, Oh, um, I w I did some acting classes when school I moved to life. LA. The school, <laughs> school of hard knocks. School of hard knocks. Our colors <laughs> were black and blue. Yeah. Uh, but she was like, Oh, oh, he really is entirely self motivated. I was like, Oh yeah, I have never. Literally never one time asked Jackson if he did his homework or yeah. it just since he was a little kid, this is just his thing. But now you understand. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you didn't go to college. The right. truth is that you're a super, super striver. Yeah. And that's what he's seen is what it means to be a successful adult. Wow. Is to be a super striver and and, and a self-objectifier and somebody who doesn't understand herself ex in, in the absence of, of material and worldly success. Yeah. And so we've seen that's not a look, you could do a lot worse. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you can do a lot worse. You, yeah. can, you know, you can say, "Oh, what it means yeah. to be a you know a grown up is to you know drink twelve beers a night." Right. I mean, there's other ways right. that you know that can go. To be sure, I mean, these are these are nice problems yeah. to have. Yeah. But it's serious yeah. nonetheless. And if you understand that, as you in your happiness journey, you know, you're becoming a happier person by getting off the throttle a little bit. Yeah. You got to let him see you doing that. Yeah. I'm going to go on vacation. I'm actually going to be on vacation. Yeah. Uh, I, I am actually going to delete social media from my phone. I am. I'm going to make some watch changes. This happen. I was wondering. Yeah. How much does choosing a partner play into our happiness? A lot. Yeah. A lot because most people are a joint operation. Most people understand themselves best as a reflection of the person that they're spending their life with. Now, that's not true with everybody. I mean, some people can have just as happy a life with a series of close friends, but you must 
happiness is love and love requires other people. So deep, you know, multi-year relationships with somebody, either friends or usually with a romantic partner is critical to that. So that's important. Now it's the choosing part is actually not the most important part. It's the developing part. It's what you do with the relationship that you have is more important than getting it perfectly right at the very beginning. Yeah. You, you're not, there's no there's such thing as soulmates. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I mean, you make a soulmate. You right. don't find a soulmate. Right. Magical thinking is dangerous for romantic relationships. I write about this a lot. And this is the unit of my class at, at the Harvard Business School that my students like the most. Because they, they want to build the enterprise of their lives. And the center of that is accumulating the currency of their startup life, which is love. And they don't know how to do that. And when you're in your 20s, it's mysterious. And, and especially so today, you find people in the 20s are a third less likely to be in love than in the 1980s when I was in my 20s. Wow. Oh, really? yeah. yeah. The, the, the likelihood of, of marriage, of cohabitation, of romantic partnership is declining, declining, declining. Why is that? It has a lot to do, well, it has a lot to do with the technology and the way that we, that we find mates. Yeah. <clears throat> Dating apps are not as good as in-person markets, as they say. Right. But we also have just a lot of fear. We have kind of a fear-based culture where people are afraid of each other, where we, they, you know, we're told that everybody is sort of threatening to you and dangerous and, you know, look out and be careful, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I get that, you know, I want my kids to be safe as well. But the way that I raise my kids is meet people in person and pair up. Yeah. Because happiness is love, full stop. Which, you know, my 25 and 23-year-old sons are both married. Yeah. I suspect that my daughter will get married pretty young too because that's really, really one of the great secrets. But you have to know how it works. I take my students through the, the, the neurophysiological process of falling in love. And there's a very practical reason for that. They're all going to be business leaders. And business leaders are in real danger of falling in love with the wrong person. You know, why is that? Because if you have a sexual relationship with somebody at work, you're going to lose your job. Oh, right. And so yeah. they're going to be executives. Yes. And and it's like, woe be unto you yes. that you do something in the workplace and, and wind That's up getting that. fired. And it happens constantly to the smartest people. You're so smart. How can you not know yeah. that having an inappropriate relationship with work is going to ruin your job? You made it to the corner office yeah. and then you blew it by having yeah. a relationship. And I show them how the brain falls in love and how to intervene in that process. But I also show them all the ways that they can actually intervene in the process of falling in love and staying in love and being in love. They'll give them the highest likelihood of having a partnership that will give them enduring happiness. Are there characteristics in a partner then that are crucial? Because yes. the mm -hmm. one that I always think of, especially if you're talking about your kids finding love really mm -hmm. early, is growth. Yeah. I heard someone on a podcast the other day. It was like kind of like a bro sort of podcast. And I actually thought it was so sweet. They were talking about how important it is that you have a partner who grows. Right. And the guy was saying. With you. Grows with you. Grows with you. But I actually thought it was a beautiful example that they gave. They're like, they don't have to grow. They don't have to be interested in the same stuff you're interested in. Right. They have to be interested in growing in their own way. Yeah. They were like, if someone's like really into like, I don't know, I'm. MMA or whatever they're just like they get really into martial arts right and they want to learn and they want to move up and they want to and they're so passionate about it and like they don't have to be interested in your small business accounting firm but they have to be interested in their life evolving right that's where we sort of miss it is one person's evolving and the other person is exactly who they were when y'all met 
And I, at least I feel like that's the crucial piece is like we both have to be growing as people. That That's true. I mean, you don't want to be with somebody who's stagnant. Right. And, and, and people who are stagnant are not happy. And being with somebody who's unhappy, they will they will almost certainly project their unhappiness onto you, and then you will become the problem. And if you're growing and they're not, then that asymmetry is lethal to a relationship. But there's two things that that I find that people get wrong, that they think one thing, but the truth is the opposite in terms of the characteristic of their partner or their relationship. Number one is that people think that that the objective of a marriage is passionate love. That's exactly wrong. Passion comes in the beginning of a relationship, and there's a certain amount of passion that you have all the way through a successful relationship. But the goal within five years is companionate love. Mm. That doesn't sound hot, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but companionate love means your goal is deep friendship, deep friendship with that particular person. And, and what you find is a lot of people will get together and they never develop a friendship. And when the passion starts to wane, they realize they don't even like each other. I mean, everybody's, everybody watching us has had that kind of experience yeah. before. So the key is, can this person be my best friend? And then develop that best friendship, which takes a few years. You don't become best friends with somebody after a week. Yeah. And, you know, you don't even know that person. Part of the passion is that you don't know the person very well at the very beginning of a relationship. And it's exciting. Yeah. It's an adventure. But when it's not an exciting and not an adventure, you need something that's actually more enduring. The goal is actually having lots and lots of oxytocin, which you get from friends. Which you get from, you know, people, your intimates, your yeah, people, yeah. it turns out. That's number one. The second big mistake that people make is they're looking for compatibility. And it turns out you need a very low baseline of compatibility with a life partner. You know, so there's certain non-negotiables. So if you're if you're a strong Christian, you want another person who's a strong Christian. Right. If you need to live in Austin, Texas, because mom and grandma and the entire family is there and you're committed to that, then okay. But this is a very low baseline. Politics is a not an area that you need compatibility in unless politics is your religion, in which case you're, you're, you belong to a terrible cult. <laughs> Get out now, <laughs> right? So what you really need is baseline compatibility on a very low level and then tons of complementarity. You need to find somebody who's excitingly different than you and who completes you. Yeah. Now, this requires a lot of sort of a giving spirit, right? But introverts need extroverts. Yep. That's what you actually need. You need people whose personalities fit and whose ideas fit because of the difference, not because of the sameness. Mm -hmm. it's, and, and that's one of the big problems with dating apps. Dating apps sort on compatibility and not on complementarity. They, they rule out difference. So people put in their dating profile, I want somebody, because we're all... You yeah. know, you want to date yeah. the person in the mirror, right? Right, And so he's like, I want somebody who votes like me and who likes this kind of food and who, you know, thinks that Sriracha is neat and Austin's awesome and this, likes this kind of music. And you wind up describing your sibling. Yes. That's really not hot. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so what do you need to do? You need to actually start sorting on complementarity. It's like, surprise me. Yeah. That's, that's, that really works. And it turns out that the happiest marriages, baseline compatibility, super complementarity, and then these people who learn to see their differences as a source of strength. Yeah. That's a really, really great thing. What if you're listening to this and your marriage is unhappy, your relationship is unhappy, and you want to get back to the place where it feels really good? Yeah. Part of, usually when that's, well, there's a lot of different reasons that that's happening. You know, that, that there, there are a million ways to Let's be unhappy in a relationship. Let's say we've just sort of like slowly fizzled. Yeah. There's no passion there anymore. Nobody hurt anybody. Nobody, yeah. It's nothing that drastic. Mm -hmm. We've just sort of lost the passion for yeah. what it was. The, the most important thing in any relationship is treating it with uh, a conscious seriousness like you would anything else. The, the worst way to make 
make your unhappy marriage happy is just hoping it gets better. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, I sure hope the weather gets better. I sure right. hope anything else. I mean, it's just this helplessness that people actually feel or saying it's only going to get better when the other person is is you know doing this is actually gonna the other person has to do something that's that's assigning your happiness to outside circumstances yes the most the, the the smart way to do it is if you have a problem in your business is to say we have a problem in our business what are we going to do is to get together with the, the, the center of the enterprise of your life which is your partnership and say I think we have a problem. What are we going to do about it? Now, maybe you go to therapy or something, but actually that that's not necessarily even the best way to do it is to start saying we, 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 us, and not I and you, and mm -hmm. I hope for the best and you yeah. bore me, et cetera, <laughs> and say, we, I think we have a problem and I think we ought to solve this problem and I think we can and start talking about it openly. And for a lot of couples, it's the first time they ever have. That doesn't work for some people, but it works for a lot more people than they're actually going to think. It was a really interesting set of papers on this, research papers on this, that shows that the single thing that you can do if you're, if you're, you're at odds. So, you know, couples that are, they're fighting a lot, they're quarreling a lot, they don't understand each other very well. An analysis of people who are fighting destructively always finds that they use I and you pronouns. Couples that fight, and my wife and I are 32 years married, and we fight all the time. I mean, she's from Spain. My wife's from Barcelona, which oh, is, you nice. know, in Spain, fighting is just like a, a, a normal form of communication, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, which was hard for the first five or 10 years of my marriage, for sure. But the, the thing is that, that she always fights saying, we need to do this. We need to solve this problem. We have an issue. She never says, you do this, and you do this, and I do this, and you make me feel this yeah. particular way. She says, we have a problem. She's incredibly collaborative in the way that she fights with me. And that makes our fights into something that are projects. Yeah, it's and, us and against they, the world, not us against Well, they lead to progress. Other. Yeah. Because everybody's got problems. And then when you have a fight, and by the way, when you fight that way, this is a really interesting thing that you find about a lot of couples who can fight right. That doesn't mean they like it. It doesn't mean like, oh, let's go have a fight because it's so fun. That they, that's when they're incredibly intimate. That's, it's an inc that fighting can be this enormous source of intimacy because you say things that you really think but you haven't said before and it's raw and it's true. And you talked about we and you feel so incredible. When you do that, you feel so incredibly close to your partner that it's magic, actually. Yeah. That's how couples at odds can actually torque the situation and make it better and make it into something that's good. A lot of people think if I don't have any conflict, that'll be better. Wrong. Wrong. You don't need to fight less. You need to fight better. Yeah. I want to talk to you for seven more hours. I really do. I, I want you to hang out here all day. We And you like can sleep on the couch and this we can just keep talking. This is the best podcast studio. I have to say oh, this good. is the only podcast studio that smells as good as it looks. We That's what we're going for. We're I going for it. good I'm vibes. The reason that I reached out to your team originally is because I loved From Strength to Strength so much. Thank and you. I feel like it is, I feel like everybody needs to read it, particularly people who are, let's say, 40 and over because it's this conversation yeah. about what are you going to do after you realize that all the things you were chasing Weren't, right. re weren't what you should be chasing. So I want to make sure that I say that before we thank end. You. But you it, have a new, you, thank you, it's just for <laughs> me, that you have a new book coming yeah. out with an unknown partner that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> no, you got to write a book with the queen. The queen, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Winfrey. Can you tell me how that came to be? Yeah, so 
during the coronavirus epidemic, you know, I was writing this column in the Atlantic every Thursday morning called How to Build a Life about the science of happiness. And I don't know who reads it, half a million people a week. Great. One of them was Oprah Winfrey. No, and she no. was, you know, locked down in her house in Montecito, California. Everybody was locked down. And she was reading it and she would look forward to it on Thursday morning. And, and then From Strength to Strength came out. So she read that. And so she said, huh, I think I want to interview this guy for my podcast. She calls him and says, you know, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm Batman. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. She called. She well, called. I mean, yeah, okay, somebody, like said, yeah, somebody okay. calls. I didn't actually didn't call my house and okay. I picked up, but you know. That'd be such a move though. I know. I know. She's awesome like that, by the way. Yeah, and and so we we collaborated on her podcast and then did a couple of other projects and it was like a house on fire. I mean, it was just like, we see the world in just the same way. Mm. It's just, we do it differently. You know, she's had this mass audience that she's brought toward ideas that she has actually found the purveyors of those ideas and gotten people in front of them and translated big ideas for her audience. So she's a translation mechanism for a massive group of people, which is why people love and trust her justifiably. And, and this is what I want too. This is what I want too. And so we thought, you know, and she said, if I, if I still had a show, you know, you would come on the show 30 times and that would have gotten you into the public zeitgeist or something, right? Yeah. But I don't have a show anymore. So let's, why don't we do a book where, you know, we'll talk about it together and then you'll introduce the science and we can talk about how it works. And so we did that. And so over the past year, past nine months, we've been writing a book, sending chapters back and forth, talking on the phone talking about text, which is a lot of, because she's moving around a lot and I'm moving around a lot. And it's been magic. I bet. It's been magic. I mean, we cooked up the whole thing in her tea house in Montecito, which is surreal. Yeah. Because I'm everything sure. she touches is beautiful. Yeah. Everything she touches is beautiful. And one of the interesting things is that it's very easy to be cynical about, you know, people who have that kind of position in society, that they have a curated public image and they're not like that. Oprah is like She's what people think. Absolutely. You know her too. Yeah. The, she is the only celebrity I've met that, and this is impossible because there's nobody I love or admire more in my whole life. Like since I was yeah. a little girl, I watched her show every day. She's the only person I've met that is better mm. than I hope she would She's be. She's authentic and true. She's funny and, and nice. And also not human. She's has like evolved <laughs> to some level that is not... I don't yeah. know how to, it's like ethereal. Yeah. And I sound insane when yeah. I say it. No, no, she's, she's, but it, she's just special. She's, she's authentically amazing. And it's been a great experience for me to get to know her what and to, 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 um, to collaborate creatively with Oprah and learn from her. And um, it's, and it's a book called build the life you want the art and science of getting happier. I hope it touches a lot of people and it brings the science and the ideas in a way that people can understand really clearly and really easily and apply it to their own lives. And, and most of all, what Oprah and I wanted with this book is to make people into happiness teachers. Because the way that you learn happiness science is by reading about it and applying it to your life, but then, then, then sharing it with other people. Because teachers are the ones who absorb the materials the most. And so we want to empower as many people as we possibly can to become happiness teachers. And maybe, I don't know, maybe let's create a happiness movement. Yeah. People who are having a rebellion of love in a society that doesn't have enough of, enough of it. We kind of have ambition, I have to say, about this. And you know what? We're at the time of our lives, Oprah and me and a lot of other people, where I think we can afford to do that. Yeah. We can afford to think at that kind of scale and, and not worry so much about you know the impact that it has on, on each one of us individually. So I feel very privileged for that. And 
I'm really grateful I got to be able to do that and looking forward to have, having people enjoy the book. Yeah, Arthur, thank you so much for the thank time. Thank you, Rachel. Thank I you hope, for your work. Oh my gosh, I hope you will come back every time you guys are in LA, you that. have something to promote. Let's continue the seven hour conversation. I would love that. This was awesome. Thank you. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble.